goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har lavet en lille rokade her i vores forsommerprogram. I den her uge skulle vi have sendt min samtale med den fantastiske amerikanske idehistoriker Lorraine Daston, der gennem en historisk analyse af vores brug af regler har lavet en forbløffende og imponerende civilisationshistorie. Men vi udskyder Lorraine Daston til næste uge, for i den her uge er der sket det, at vi selv har udgivet Thomas Piketty's nye lille bog om racisme. Og for at gøre udgivelsen til en begivenhed, og for at få samtalen i gang med det samme, så har jeg også talt med Piketty om bogen. Hello. Hello. Thank you for taking your time, Thomas, and talking to us again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Piketty blev verdenskendt for sin meget store økonomiske analyser, der kulminerede i bogen Kapitalen i det 21. århundrede. Dengang lagde han vægt på, at hvis man studerede de økonomiske data grundigt, og man gjorde det i et historisk perspektiv, så kunne man se kilderne til den økonomiske ulighed, og man fik en bedre forståelse af det. Dengang skrev og talte Piketty som en økonom, der ville gøre de økonomiske strukturer, den økonomiske uretfærdighed, tilgængelighed for et større publikum, så det, der havde været taget ud af den demokratiske samtale, kunne komme ind i den demokratiske samtale. Han skrev som politisk engageret økonom. Hans næste bog, den store bog Kapitaler Ideologi, var en forskydning i forfatterskabet. Fordi her siger Piketty, at idéer betød meget mere, end han troede, da han skrev Kapital i det 21. århundrede. Her siger han, at når han ser i et stort perspektiv, og han drager ikke vestlige lande ind, så kan han se, at politik har faktisk en meget stor rolle at skulle spille. Politik er ikke nødvendigvis underordnet økonomi. Så det er på sin vis en mere håbefuld bog. Det er også en meget længere bog, og det er en meget mere aktivistisk bog, fordi den sidste fjerdedel er et forsøg på at lave et program for det, han kalder for en demokratisk socialisme. Derefter fulgte hans bog, som hedder En kort historie om ulighed, som er en lille lækker sag på 250 sider, der kan læses på en togtur fra København til Aalborg, hvis man skal på en af dem her over sommerferien. Og i den bog, der forskyder Piketty ulighedsanalysen. Han siger, at vi kan ikke nøjes med at forholde os til ulighed i formue, ulighed i aktiver og uligheder i indkomst, hvis vi vil konfrontere ulighed. Vi bliver nødt til også at se på ulighed mellem mænd og kvinder, ulighed mellem forskellige etniske grupper og ulighed mellem forskellige seksuelle orienteringer. Vi bliver nødt til at konfrontere alle former for ulighed på én gang, og det, vi bliver nødt til at se på dem samlet. Og det gør vi på en måde, så de peger nedefra og op. Det vil sige, på kønsområdet siger man, hvad er det for nogle magtstrukturer, der holder kvinder ude og nede? Hvad er det for nogle arbejdsgiver, der ikke ansætter kvinder og ikke giver kvinder en chance? Hvad er det for en magtudøvelse, der findes i bestyrelser, som gør, at kvinder har meget længere vej til at blive direktør i firmaer? Og hvad er det overalt i vores samfund for magtfulde aktører, der gør, at folk med en anden etnicitet, anden seksuel orientering eller et andet køn, en traditionel mand, de bliver holdt ude og holdt nede. Den tilgang udviklede Piketty selvfølgelig for at konfrontere det, der har været Venstrefløjens helt store problem i de sidste 30 år. At enten førte man kulturkampe for lighed i forhold til køn, seksualitet, race, indvandrere og flygtninge, som ligesom var lighed mellem majoritetsgruppen og minoritetsgrupper, mellem dem, der var indenfor og dem, der var udenfor. Men de kampe fik meget ofte en social slagside og blev formuleret på en måde, så der var rigtig mange i majoritetskulturens arbejderklasse, der vendte sig imod dem. 
For mange blev det oplevet som en kulturel klassekamp oppefra og ned, hvor der var nogen, der ville belære andre om, hvordan man skulle tale om og se på flygtninge, indvandrere, finder og seksuelle minoriteter. Derfor stod Venstrefløjen længe i dilemmaet mellem at føre kulturelle klassekampe for udvidelse af spillerummet for alle, uden for det magtfulde normalitetsbegreb i vores samfund, eller på den anden side, føre en økonomisk klassekamp mellem dem, der har pengene, og dem, der er underordnet, dem, der har pengene, dem, der har formuerne, og dem, der ikke har noget som helst. Piketty's tænkning i en kort historie om ulighed er, at enhver normativ tilgang til spørgsmål om retfærdighed må være det, som man kalder multidimensional. Hans nye bog, Racisme skal måles for at overvinde diskrimination, er et eksempel på, hvordan man gør det. Hvordan man tager klassekampfiguren fra det økonomiske område og overfører til et andet område. Det er et forsøg på at genopfinde en venstreorienteret tilgang til et område, som Venstrefløjen har tabt og tabt igen på over de sidste 20-30 år, nemlig spørgsmålet om racisme. Her følger min samtale med vores ven, Thomas Piketty. So, let's get down to business. It seems to me that over the years, your work is becoming more and more multidimensional. Of course, you change the scope in capital and ideology. Uh, and have policy recommendations. And in a brief history of equality, you 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 really change the scope and include racial inequality, the colonial legacy, gender in inequality, and also becoming more and more politically engaged. If if my thesis is correct, that it's becoming more multidimensional and more politically engaged, how do you what are your reflections on this trajectory? Yes, you know, I, I think you're perfectly right. I think this reflects, uh, you know, the evolution of my research and, and uh, the, the collective dimension also uh, of this research within the World Inequality Lab and World Inequality Database. And basically, you know, extending the scope of inquiries uh, to more countries, to, to other parts of the world, also to longer period in history, Uh, indeed, as as uh, as induced me to to take this broader perspective on inequality, because you know the key point is that if you you know whether if you try to understand, for instance, you know what are the countries in the world with highest level of inequality, you know it's clear that the the, the historical legacy of of colonialism, slavery, you know plays a very important role. Like today, if you look at the world map, you know the most uh, An equal country in terms of income or wealth is going to be South Africa. Then it will be Brazil. It will be India. And you know you can see how the historical legacy uh, uh, here is playing an, an obvious role. And this is also true when you trying you know if you try to understand the the industrial development of European countries, or if you try to compare the kind of inequality regime that we see you know, over time across centuries, you know, like at the time of the French Revolution, already you have a mixture of sort of status-based inequality and, and monetary inequality. And, you know, I think we, we still have this uh, combination today where inequality is based on status, whether it's, you know, racial, uh, gender, uh, uh, origin, uh, and, you know, combination of all of this, you know, have, have played a tremendous role historically, And uh, you know it would be a big mistake to believe that this is uh, that this is over. You know, this is still playing. You know, so the interplay between these all these different forms of status-based inequality and sort of more 
traditional uh, monetary economic inequalities based on income and wealth. It's really this interplay that is that is absolutely absolutely central. Over the last decade or so, we've seen people on the left say, "Well, you have two kinds of inequality. You have what they call horizontal inequality, cultural issues. You have someone like Branko Milanovic saying, well, if you talk about cultural inequality, that's very compatible with neoliberalism. They want to be against racism and against gender inequality, but they don't want to change really the dimensions of power. And he says, well, you should confront vertical inequality. And there's the assumption that economic inequality is the real inequalities, and the others are, are more surface phenomena. But you insist that all these inequalities, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's wealth, whether it's income, they should be studied vertically. H how is your position on that? Yeah, they, they should be studied vertically and they should be studied together because, you know, these other inequalities, as you said, you know, are also vertical. You know, the, the, whether we, we think of gender inequality or racial inequality or, or, you know, climate inequality today, you know, they, they involve uh, very hierarchical relationship, uh, they, they involve domination, and they bear strong relation with the distribution of income and wealth. So we, we need to study them together. We, we also need to be careful because indeed, you know, there's been, a, a, you know, I think the, one of the tricks behind the neoliberal uh, discourse, you know, is to try to pretend that, you know, uh, uh, basically we should just deal with sort of anti-discrimination, which in practice, you know, neoliberal government don't, don't do much about uh, discrimination, but at least in, the, at, in terms of discourse, you know, there's sometimes an attempt to try to promote a few symbolic uh, measures to fight discrimination as an excuse, you know, not to uh, reduce class inequality. And, and this, you know, I am very concerned with this. And I think, you know, this is certainly part of the concern of Branko Milanovic. And, I, you know, I think he's, he's, he's right about this. But, that, you know, at the same time, we should not abandon the, the, you know, the fight against discrimination. We have to do it much more seriously than it is done by, you know, sometimes some people who use this as a little uh, sort of symbolic action to, to, to look nicer, but then, uh, then they don't really do it, and they don't want to do anything about class uh, class structure. You know, generally speaking, I think what we are really suffering from uh, in today's world, and in particular with the rise of sort of identity politics and and, and conflict uh, about identity, is uh, you know the the consequence of the fact that because we have. Uh, sort of abandon a sort of ambitious perspective on reducing inequality in general and, and, and in particular class inequality, you know, then the, the, the sort of the focus on, on identity is taking all the space. But the response, I think, you know, the right response is certainly not to abandon the sort of anti-discrimination fight or, you know, the, the question about the right of, of migrants and, and uh, global justice between the North and, and South, etc. But quite quite the contrary, you know, I think it, it, you, we have to return first to an ambitious agenda about socioeconomic inequality and the class structure, but we have to do it, you know, with a global uh, perspective, you know, including, of course, uh, the anti-discrimination dimension. There's a very polemical tone in the beginning of your book. There's a very hard criticism of identity politics, and I think you refer primarily to identity politics on the right. 
what was the context that this book was written into? What was the context that you were addressing with the book? You know, this book was written in the in really in the middle of the French presidential campaign of 2022. So at the, at the end of 21, uh, beginning of 22. Uh, in particular, when uh, you know Eric Zemmour, so you know I don't know how, how famous uh, this person has become in in Denmark, but so Eric Zemmour was basically trying to get some of the Le Pen uh, uh, vote, uh, 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 trying to beat Le Pen from the right, if you want. So 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 Zemmour was developing, you know, very strong discourse based on basically eight of Islam, eight of of Muslim migrant or you know any migrant that has anything to do with. Uh, uh, North Africa or, or Sub-Saharan Africa, for that uh, for that matter, and um, you know this was really a setting where uh, you know many of the of the media and in particular you know in, in France we have this sort of French uh, Murdoch uh, called uh, Vincent Bolloré, who so it's not called Fox News, it's called C News, but you know basically he was giving. Uh, one hour of TV time per day to Zemmour for the past three years before the election, and you know it's clear that this combination of uh, a sort of very uh, you know pro-business uh, right and violently anti-migrant uh, and anti-islam right you know was very was very frightening at the at the time i was writing so probably you know the beginning of the book is has to be reread in the context of this particular time now that being said you know at the end of the day you know this this uh, candidate zemmour got about seven uh, percent of the vote and you know it is clear that these seven percent of the vote are certainly very you know anti uh, anti-migrant anti-muslim voters but now what's interesting is that well first there are only seven percent of the vote so 93 percent of the of french voters are, are, do not feel like that and uh, and and you know it's interesting to see that these seven percent of the vote were, were actually stronger in in sort of richer neighborhoods so more bourgeois neighborhood actually if you look in the 16th arrondissement of Paris or, you know, the sort of traditional, very right-wing uh, bourgeois settings. This is where Zemmour got his bigger score. Uh, uh, whereas, the, you know, most of the of the National Front, which is now called Rassemblement National, but it's the same Le Pen party, they actually do their better score much more in rural areas, uh, uh, relatively poor. I mean, not the really poorest area, but sort of middle poor, uh, uh, you know, a little bit below the, the median uh, uh, in terms of income, uh, areas where there's actually very little, very few migrants and where there's, I, I don't think, you know, the concern about migrants and Islam is really the key motivation for the vote. You know, I think in the end, one of the lessons from this election, which makes me maybe a, a bit more optimistic uh, than, than at the time I was writing the book, which was a time where there was a possibility that Zemmour would, uh, would be at the top and possibly in the second round of the election. Is that, in fact, you know, I think most voters who actually chose Le Pen rather than Zemmour, I'm, I'm not saying they are in love with Islam and migrants, but their key motivation, you know, is not so much to be, you know, anti-migrant or anti-Islam. I think their key motivation is much more socio-economic in nature. You know, there's really the feeling, in particular in, in rural areas or in the smaller uh, urban centers, uh, of being abandoned, uh, which I think, you know, is, reflects, you know, it's partly true in the sense that if you look at the uh, public services, in particular, the sort of new public services that have become very important in recent decades, you know, uh, uh, having access to good uh, higher education, universities for, for your children or good hospitals. You know, it's true that if you are relatively poor, 
in a, in a large urban centers, you have sort of better access to university hospital for your children that if you are poor, you know, in the in the smaller urban unit. So I think that's that this is the first feeling of of uh, uh, you know be, being abandoned a little bit, and I think this partly explain why these people vote for the National Front rather than for the left. Whereas if you look at the poorest municipalities in the large urban centers, in the suburbs, uh, uh, you have stronger votes for, for the left. Again, irrespective of identity and origin. So, I, you know, I think it's, it has more to do with sort of socioeconomic conflict about, in particular, the, the, the development of public services and higher education, hospital, etc. The, the second other important socioeconomic dimension, I think, which sort of separates the sort of poor in the rural world and the poor in the urban world has to do with the different uh, productive specialization in the sense that the you know, if you look at industrial workers, so of course, the total number of manufacturing workers has declined in recent decades, but what's very striking And, and I don't think this is true only in France. This is, I think, more general than this, is that, you know, until the 1980s, 1990s, the suburbs of the large urban units were the areas where you had the largest number of, of industrial workers in the manufacturing sector. Now, this is not true anymore. And the biggest fraction of industrial workers exposed to international competition are actually in more in the smaller uh, urban uh, centers. And these are, voters that have been, you know, felt to be more exposed to international competition and with the feeling that the sort of very pro-European, pro-free trade tone of the left, you know, did not do them uh, a lot of good. Whereas the poorest electorate living in the more urban areas work more in the services, you know, in, in uh, uh, say, the, you know, so they work in shops, they work in restaurants, they work in the health sectors, are, you know, nurses. And they, I mean, they are certainly not richer than the industrial workers living in smaller urban units. In fact, they tend to be poorer with more expensive housing costs. So, you know, it's not that their situation is any better. Uh, they are equally poor or even poorer than the sort of the rural poor, but they are less exposed to international competition. And they are more in line with the left uh, agenda of promoting uh, urban public services. So to summarize, you know, I, I think the, the conflict, the kind of political conflict that we have in front of us has more to do with socioeconomic issues, you know, access to public services, exposure to international competition. And this means that, you know, the solution are more socioeconomic in nature than, than uh, just pushing an identity. You know, the, the only one that was just pushing an identity was Zemmour. And, you know, in the end, it's it's 7% of the vote. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not important, but I don't think we should focus only on this. I think there's a, this has been very interesting over the last decades, I think, because the left has lost the battle about racism morally. This has been a right-wing dominated discourse. And I think when it comes to economic justice, the left is winning on a rhetorical level on a, in the public discourse. And, and when it comes to climate, the left is winning as well. But racism has been very, very hard, at least here in Denmark and Scandinavian countries. Every time we talk about racism, the right is winning. And we've been talking about how we develop a moral approach to this, but you come with a totally different tool. You say it's all about measuring racism. Tell us about this approach. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I, I really want to make clear in my book that any policy against, uh, you know, racism and against discrimination must really be put in the context of, you know, broader uh, socioeconomic policy 
aiming to reduce inequality in, in, in general. And, and so, you know, when I, when I, I talk about how we can get uh, uh, more access to uh, higher incomes, better paid jobs, or more access to property for everyone with, you know, minimum inheritance for all, you know, I don't care about your origins. I don't care about your ancestors. I, you know, this is a universal kind of policy to reduce inequality. And I think it is, uh, you know, the, the, the same when, when we talk about public services, uh, you know, lots of uh, rural areas with almost no migrant are sort of very disadvantaged and also a lot of more uh, urban suburbs area with a lot of migrant origin are also very disadvantaged if you look at the average uh, uh, experience of teachers, the number of contract teachers. And so in fact, you know, there's, you know, some people are trying to oppose these different electorate, but they have in fact a lot in common in terms of in, in the end being badly treated by the sort of in terms of budgetary allocation, etc. So you know, universal policies to reduce these, these inequalities are, you know, the number one response. That being said, we also have uh, an issue about, uh, you know, racial discrimination in France and, and certainly in Denmark and across Europe in the sense that, you know, in spite of the fact that there is actually a lot of, of intermarriage and mixing, you know, a lot more than in, in the U.S. context, for instance, where, you know, the division, in particular, the historical division between black and white was, was much, much stronger, you know, for obvious reasons in relation to explicit segregation for, for a long time. In, in, in France, and, you know, I guess in Denmark, although I know less, there, there's quite a lot of, of intermarriage and mixing across generations. You still have, uh, you know, a number of préjugés among employers, among consumers, which are such that, you know, for the same CV, for the same uh, uh, degree, uh, uh, you know, you've gone to the same school, the same, uh, the same work experience. You just don't get the same interview to get the job if your name looks uh, North African or Sub-Saharan or whatever than if your name looks French or, or, or Dutch. So. What do we do with that? And here, you know, what, what I stress is that, you know, we, we certainly don't want to create the kind of rigid identities and, and racial categories that, that have been used historically uh, in the US to actually enforce segregation. You know, these categories, are, you know, are you black, are you white, were not invented to combat segregation, but of course to enforce segregation. So we, we, we certainly don't want to use these categories. So we have to design you know, we have to find some sort of European model if you want to fight discrimination where, you know, you're not going to ask people uh, every day, you know, are you, uh, uh, are you African, are you European, whatever. We want in an indirect manner, you know, through the information that is collected, you know, once and for all in a, in a census uh, type institution uh, based on the, on, on, not on the, on the feeling of identity, but rather on some objective uh, measures like the country of birth of your parents or grandparents or grand-grandparents. We want to be able to then automatically measure for each kind of occupation and sector, you know, whether there's a particularly strong imbalance in uh, the, the, you know, whether different origins just never get promoted or never get interviewed. And then, you know, making this data public, transparent, you know, will be uh, would, would be a way to allow, you know, trade union, uh, political party, you know, citizens association to sort of monitor what's going on, to uh, follow the particular occupation, particular sectors where things are, are not going well, 
which could then, you know, mobilize a, a collective action, you know, including and, and, and the jurisdictional front. But I think, you know, what's what's very important is first to have some objective uh, basis uh, uh, which allows us to monitor uh, the extent of this discrimination. You know, in the, in the case of France, I know less well, obviously, about Denmark, but I think it's similar. We actually know that there's a lot of discrimination, but we are not really able to follow its extent over time, year after year, and sector uh, sector by sector, etc. So, so like in France, we have lots of studies, you know, sending uh, 10,000 CV, uh, 10,000 fake CV to different interview uh, uh, for jobs, uh, uh, and finding that you know if you change the name of the CV and keep the same CVs, and you know you divide by two your probability of being interviewed. But then we, we we are not able to to say whether this has increased or declined during the past five years or past ten years in this particular sector or particular sector because the the different studies are never conducted exactly in the same manner. The sample size are too small to be fully comparable over time across sectors. So you know this can look like very technical. Uh, issues, but in fact, it's quite important because if we don't have an observatory that can, you know, objectively measure these realities, then, you know, different groups make different claims on the basis of their own préjugés, uh, and, and we are not really able to to make to make any progress. So, so the, the difficulty, you know, I think is to be able to have this uh, very uh, clear and transparent observatory and at the same time, you don't want to. So you certainly don't want to to introduce rigidity in individual uh, uh, identities. And 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 I think you know this is the difficulty which, in my view, can be solved. But you know this has not been fully solved yet. It's because here there's a real issue. You know we have to be very careful about the way we do it. And uh, you know I think very often in in Europe. Again, I know less well about Denmark, but certainly in France and also in Germany, Italy, Spain, which I know a little better, uh, you know, there's a, the, the, we are stuck in a debate where, you know, basically some people say, let's introduce the, the racial categories used in the US, uh, UK, and we are going to be able to measure everything perfectly well, and we are going to solve the battle against discrimination very easily. And I don't think that's true. And then other people saying, Oh, don't never do that because you rigidify uh, uh, identities. Which you know, I understand this reaction, but at the same time, very often this second side is proposing not to change anything and is just saying, okay, we we don't want to become like the US. Okay, that's fine. But then, what do you do about discrimination? If you don't do much, you know, that's not satisfactory either. And so the the dialogue between these two viewpoints, which you know, I, I understand some of the arguments of the two of the two sides, and you know, I have friends on both sides, etc. But very often, you know, this dialogue, you know, does not really lead anywhere. You know, I'm trying in this book, you know, to see how we can find some ways, you know, to to get beyond this situation. And you know, I'm certainly not saying that you know I have found the magic bullet or the perfect solution. You know, maybe maybe you know in the book there's. A, Three uh, percent of what uh, you know the right solution is in the book, and we are still looking for the other ninety-seven percent. And I, you know, I hope uh, you know different uh, people and participants to this discussion will will bring their own ninety-seven uh, percent. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm certainly not pretending you know I have uh, found the magic solution, but this is the at least you know the complicated discussion which I am trying to contribute to 
on this book, you know, being aware that this is both very important and very complex. You know, people who say that it's simple and easy are wrong. This I am sure about. Well, I have just, um, I think I have two more questions. We have time for that. You try in your book to establish alliances between all the people who are working class or all those who are in neglected areas. So we don't have the working class against the weakened uh, minorities. So you try to push the universalist position as long as you can. So we will lift everyone at the same time and reduce racial inequality among other inequalities. But very often in public discourse, you reach a point where some are saying, well, this universalist discourse, this has just been a formal way of putting real inequality still, that we see who was winning when we had the universalist welfare state. It was all the white Danes and the minorities were losing. So they're saying we must compensate. We must have some kind of representative measures. We must have some kind of affirmative uh, action. How do you see this dilemma? You know, I think, again, what's important is to be able to measure discrimination in, in the way I, I just described so that then you can have collective mobilization to fight for it. But if you have sort of symbolic uh, affirmative action measure, you know, very often this is purely symbolic and, and, and this is actually not really promoting equality. So we, ha we have to be, uh, you know, very careful. Ju just to give you an example, in, in the context of France, you know, for a long time, Uh, government have said, okay, we are going to have this uh, sort of equivalent of the Danish uh, ghetto, if you want, you know, neighborhoods which are, have a lot of uh, foreign population, and and you know, we are going to have, we are going to be very nice with them. There will be, you know, a special uh, uh, supplementary wage for the teacher going there. Except that, you know, if you look at the data, in fact, these places are places where the the uh, you know young. Uh, Teachers are very young; they are not experimented. You have a lot of contract teachers, so in fact, you know the average wage of the teachers in these neighborhoods is actually much, much less than the average wage of the teacher, you know, in central Paris. And this little uh, bonus, you know, supplementary wage that you are introducing is compensating for you know less than five percent of the initial wage difference. So. You see the sort of complete hypocrisy that you know you pretend you do affirmative action by giving you know more to those who have less, but in fact you're giving a lot less to those who have less, and at the same time you pretend that you give more. And so you know that's a complete uh, you know that's a sort of perfect example of complete hypocrisy. So you know first of all you, you need to make sure that you are at least the same uh, sort of average uh, wage uh, uh, per teacher. Uh, uh, you know, everywhere, which which you don't have. You know, in, in France, uh, I can tell you, you know, we, the data has been uh, put together by a, a PhD student at PSC a couple of years ago, Asma Medanda, and she has shown that the average wage per teacher is actually a steeply rising function of the fraction of socially advantaged children in the school. So, you know, higher in central Paris than, than in the suburbs after taking into account all the bonuses and, and everything. So, Sometimes you have sort of smaller class size in the in the in the suburbs, but you know I'm not sure having a smaller class size with the less well-paid teachers uh, is really compensating. Uh, you know if you have a completely inexperienced and temporary teacher. So that's an example where we need to have sort of much more ambitious equality standards about public services to begin with, uh, rather than pretend that you know we want uh, uh, you know uh, that that we have uh, we are so generous that we have affirmative action which is you know complete reconstruction uh, in terms of narrative of the of the 
of the of the reality. And you know, we have the same in France on higher education, where you know we put public resources per student, which are three times bigger in the elitist. Uh, Uh, track in uh, so-called grand écoles and what we put to the to the average uh, to the average university track, and then you know we pretend to do some little correction, but which which in fact are not big enough, are very are sometimes are stupidly small, ridiculously small as compared to this enormous gap that we have to to begin with. So yeah, you can see how you know sometimes the affirmative action rhetoric is just a way. To, to dissimulate the lack of uh, egalitarian ambition. You know, at an even more general level, you know, I think one of the problems is that the, the sort of social democratic agenda based on uh, equality in access to education, health, and, and construction of the welfare state, you know, which, which played an enormous role between the 1930s and the 1970s, 80s to try to bring together a uh, uh, lower class electorate from the cities from the from the rural areas from everywhere this uh, uh, agenda has been in a way you know frozen in the 1980s 1990s and so if you look at you know the total size of the welfare state is uh, uh, sort of stabilized since then and uh, you know i think in the long run it's a mistake because if you have a rise in uh, uh, medical technology, uh, if you have aging, if you have a rise of a fraction of a generation going to higher education, and that's good for, for the economy, that's good for emancipation, that's good on all grounds. And if you freeze uh, the total resources that you put into this, you know, you can see very well that you have a problem. And so uh, uh, then you're going to have more private investment in health and education with a lot more inequality and also actually a less less efficient outcome collectively you know if you you take mm. um, in the us the health sector is mostly private they spend almost 20% of gdp in health sector today with very bad health indicators so, and i don't think this is good for the competitiveness of the us economy in any meaningful sense so i think you know going public and continuing the the, the construction of the social state you know, in the long run is not only Uh, more uh, equitable. It's 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 also more efficient uh, for 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 the economy, uh, just like it has been in the past. But in order to get there and to have this sort of new uh, step in the construction of the of the social state and the welfare state, you know, we need a, a more ambitious global perspective on tax progressivity, on tax fairness. And you know, Denmark is not an island. Uh, <laughs> Norway is not an island. France is not an island. And you know the the view that we can uh, we can just uh, uh, you know build our welfare state alone without any uh, common action in terms of taxation of multinationals, or large billionaires, etc. Is, is I think a big mistake. One last question, very short. There's something very interesting about your work is that it's becoming more and more optimistic over the years. It's becoming a more and more hopeful, uh, hopeful work, and I feel sometimes the opposite about the world. That in 2019, I was quite optimistic about Fridays for Future, all the things that were happening at the time. I feel now that this is a really dark moment in Europe. I feel there are no strong progressive movements or no strong progressive governments. So my last question is: Where do you see political fronts that make you hopeful these days? Well, the first, you know, response is you know. 
take a long run perspective. You know, if you, if you take a long run perspective, you start at the time of the French Revolution or the, you start at the time of you know, the early 20th century at the eve of World War One, and you know you compare you know the situation today. You know we have built a much more egalitarian society through new institutions in terms of uh, fiscal, social, uh, legal system. This has been tremendously successful. This has brought more social equality, more political equality, economic equality, and at the same time, more prosperity. So the long run evidence, you know, is that, uh, you know, the movement toward more equality and more prosperity, uh, uh, you know, as, 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 as to come together and, and as to continue. Now, the second lesson from history is that, you know, of course, it doesn't come just like this. You know, this comes through enormous social struggles, political mobilization. And I agree with you that we are not there yet in terms of, of uh, you know, the current situation. But again, we have to put this into perspective. You know, I think the end of neoliberalism, you know, has started uh, to, to really begin with the 2008 financial crisis, was accelerated with the, with the COVID crisis in 2020. But, you know, you have to remember where we start from. You know, in the 1990s and early 2000s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we were really in this era of sort of neoliberal euphoria, which, you know, by the way, I was more liberal and, and pro-market at the time, also as a young student, you know, very anti-communist. And, you know, I, I, you know, I can very well understand how the time was the time of uh, sort of pro-market business euphoria. But then we have realized collectively uh, that, you know, this has gone far too far. And, you know, the 2008 financial crisis has reminded us that, you know, private capitalism uh, without uh, uh, public uh, uh, central bank and, and uh, you know, public authorities, uh, you know, is able to, to, to crash by itself to, to and, you know, need actually this public support. And I think so, the, you know, the perception has started to, to change. Now, what we don't know yet is, you know, what's going to come next? You know, are we going to have some kind of neoliberal plateau where we sort of stay in this equilibrium with the sort of stabilization of inequality at a very high level? Are we going to have some form of neo-nationalism, which is a little bit what uh, Trump, Brexit uh, uh, were about? But at the same time, we've also seen the limit of that. Because, you know, we talk a lot about the limit of the left, but, you know, the limit of the, of the mm -hmm. political right when they are in power, you know, is quite apparent. You know, look at uh, Donald Trump uh, in front of the pandemic, uh, uh, Boris Johnson after Brexit, you know, uh, it's easy to make big nationalist uh, claims when you are in opposition. But then when you're in power, you know, this does not bring you very far. So, so you know, I think this neo-nationalism, you know, in the long run is, is not going to address the big, you know, environmental challenges and social challenges that we have to address. So this is what makes me optimistic, which is that I think, you know, in the longer run, we'll have a new form of sort of social democratic uh, platform. I prefer to talk about democratic socialism. Some people prefer to talk about social democracy for the 21st century. That's perfectly fine with me as long as we agree that we need, you know, some kind of long-run objective about the size and structure of the welfare state, the level of tax progressivity, redistribution of wealth, minimum inheritance, etc., which is a new, really a new form of social democracy or democratic socialism as compared to what we have today. So, you know, the kind of future I envision is a change in the, in the 21st century of similar importance or magnitude as the changes we had in the in the 20th century so no more no less and and 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking for an evolution that is of completely different form, but, you know, this is already quite an enormous transformation. <laughs> I, I, say, I think the mistake of the social democratic movement was to believe so at some point in the 1990s or 2000s that we should just freeze everything where, where we are. And, uh, you know, as a political movement, if you tell voters, okay, we just want to freeze everything where we are, what we have done in the past is uh, close to perfect and there's not much else we want to do, you know, probably voters are going to tell you, well, we want to try someone else and, and we want to have a, you know, like nationalist movement, which, you know, I'm, I'm not sure voters are very um, optimistic about what this nationalist can bring, but at the same time, you know, if you, if you don't propose anything about having more uh, redistribution from billionaires, from large multinationals, and if you tell people, you know, we, there's nothing we can do to reduce inequality in this dimension, and you have some other people who, who tell them, who tell voters, okay, we are going to help you by eating uh, the poor and eating the migrants. At least these people are easier to eat than the powerful people at the top. You know, I think voters have no illusion on the fact that this is going to bring, this is not going to bring them a lot. But, you know, unfortunately, some are tempted by the idea, well, at least, you know, that's something that can be done given that the other options uh, seem to be uh, out of the table. So, you know, we are back to the initial thing is that we, we need to get some more optimistic and ambitious platform for the future. Otherwise, we'll be stuck with the identity rhetoric. And I think coming from a social democratic country, we really prefer calling it democratic socialism because that has some inspiration and renewal about it. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your inspiration and for taking your time yet again. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Det var så min samtale med Thomas Piketty. Bogen hedder Racisme skal måles for at diskrimination. Og hvis der er nogen, der er blevet fuldstændig villig varme for at købe bogen og læse den her i varmen, så kan man gå ind på butik.information.dk og bestille den der. Hvis man er abonnent på Dagbladet Information, så kan man da få den billigere. Og jeg kan sige, at den er på 75 sider. Den kan læses på en togtur fra København til Odense, hvis man skal på sådan en her hen over sommeren. Jeg kan stærkt anbefale det, for den er hurtigt læst, men den efterlader et vejt indtryk. I næste uge tager vi så den samtale, jeg talte om i starten, når jeg annoncerede sidste uge, nemlig med den fantastiske amerikanske idehistoriker Lorraine Dastan. Jeg lover, det bliver en enestående civilisationsgennemgang, hvor vi også når frem til en for mig fuldstændig overrumplende kapitalismekritik, som jeg overhovedet ikke havde set komme. Den her samtale var produceret af vores gode ven, kammerat og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen næste uge.